0: Thank you. Jason Baxter is with us today. He is Professor of Fine Arts and Humanities at Wyoming Catholic College. He is the author of many things, including A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy and also a new book, An Introduction to Christian Mysticism, Covering the Wildness of Spiritual Life, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Baxter. So good to be here. Thanks. All right. The sub- wildness. You're out in Wyoming. Things are wild out there. What what do you mean? So, the spiritual life is properly going to have a little wildness to it, yes? I think so. I think it's something that
1: uh, uh, C.S. Lewis understood. You know, he has all these funny moments toward the, you know, in the middle of his Chronicles of Narnia, in which when Aslan comes, children get out of school, prisoners get out of prison, (laughs) people Mm -hmm. get out of offices, things melt down. And it's more of a dance. It's more it's uh, there's a sort of Dionysian spirit Hmm. that uh, I think um, I think if if your church is nothing but a tame moral code, you might be missing something important to the tradition. And yes, Wyoming's very wild, but wild in the way that a desert is wild, wild in the way that something uh, empty and vast and open and silent, which makes you sort of. Turn to resources you didn't know you have. That kind of a wild, and that's one of the favorite metaphors of the mystical tradition is to describe an encounter with God as best happening in a desert.
0: Hmm. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that connection, but I I, I should have. Uh. Obviously, the uh, the wildness has. Well, I I can see. Look, late teenagers when so many. You know end up not pursuing the church, look especially especially the boys they're they're driven to the wild I mean yeah. and, and again, not as you say the chaotic wild, but you know the strong, the powerful, the overwhelming right. uh even I, I I think the wild when, i mean I remember myself at that age, you know, eighteen or nineteen, and you know a lot of things are happening, and you want strength. Right, that you right. want something powerful to attach yourself to, but they don't. Well, I guess they do get a lot of the wrong kinds of wildness, right? Yeah, I, th- I think you know. I think especially that
1: demographic you mentioned wants to supplement, wants to supplement its mere mortality, right? Wants to achieve something great. Wants to do something you know memorably honorable and, and and famed i suppose i suppose maybe they don't know that when they jump in their you know 2021 20, dodge challenger and and uh and try to hit 80 in a, in, a, in, a, in a residential neighborhood but i think i mean obviously there are there are immoral ways to do this there are imprudent ways to do this but i think if we if we if we habituate ourselves to including people like meister eckhart and people like dionysius the areopagite and gregory of Nyssa. And uh, Francis of Assisi, right? Not the not the cheesy, pastel, airbrushed, you know, bless your uh, your your toy dog image of Francis, right? But the 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 one that Bonaventure presents, right? The the one who gets beaten up by thieves and thrown into a muddy ditch, and sings forth a hymn of creation from his heart. I think if we ask include those in our conversation, then they would say something very interesting. That is morality has to flow from a vision of the beauty of God. And then of then you become good. Then you pursue righteous behavior. But we act, and our sociologists like Christian Smith say this, of course, you know, I'm very familiar to, to the readers of First Things. We live in an age of moralistic, therapeutic deism, as, as Christian Smith called it. In other words, for us, our religion threatens to collapse into good civil behavior. Whereas for our ancestors, those sorts of things flow forth from the fulminating, thunderous vision of God. Think Isaiah 6, think Ezekiel 2, think Jacob wrestling with the angel. And my goodness comes from those types of moments. That's one of the things I think that is the, you know, I I jokingly say in the book, that I see myself here as a kind of curator going down into the basement of the church and seeing what kinds of weird objects we've forgotten for the past 180 years, you know, past 200 years, which we might be able to bring back up for a temporary display. And I think sort of dragging some of these things out of the church is is really timely for us in this age in which uh, secularism, by forcing us to ask what should Christianity be, what could Christianity be, what should religion be? What could Christian religion be? Is making us ask the question: well, what has it been anyway? And this is one of those kind of cool pre-modern, post-modern alignments that the you know modernity is beginning, or modernism is beginning to look like a sort of blip, right in 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 a wider historical spectrum.
0: Hmm. What is the general state of Christian mysticism? here in the 21st century?
1: That's a great question. I think this is one of the many reasons I'm excited about Bernard McGinn's kind of epic, multi-volume project that he's doing. He started in the 90s. He began with what he called the Foundations of Mysticism in which he talked Augustine and Dionysius and Evagrius and some of the Desert Fathers. And then every couple of years, he's been releasing a new volume. And he's sort of climbed his way up to the, to the, to the 17th century. And he hopes to go all the way to the, to the 21st century. Um, I mean, I suppose, I don't know, maybe mysticism has always, you know, been in hard times, right? I mean, maybe in some sense, those, those few epic souls, you know, think of, you know, sort of Dante's Ulysses in Inferno 26, if he had done it well. Right, but those sort of few souls that are possessed in a healthy way by a kind of sacred restlessness that push out beyond the sort of mundane things and and really, as and Eckhart uses this extraordinary image, allow themselves to enter a, a position of sort of a condition of spiritual nakedness before God. Those are always, I'm sure, they've always been few, and you know, always will be few. But it does feel like that. Our world is particularly scant on mystical souls, and I think there are a lot of interesting reasons for that. I mean, Eliot says we're the generation that's distracted from distraction by distraction, right? Yeah. We're the generation that is, you know, lonely in the in the crowd, right? Because we're the generation that's sort of addicted to our peripheral hubbub and busyness, and I write about that a little bit in the book. And yet, um, as uh, Flannery O'Connor puts it in a letter to her atheist friend. You know, in the past, it was only a couple of extraordinary saints who went through a dark night. Now I feel like, she says, the whole world's going through a dark night of the soul. Mm. And so I, I wonder if in, a, if in a weird way, if this sort of age of secularism in which the consoling presence of God feels somewhat more remote, in which the sort of the, as Matthew Arnold you know, once put it, in which the sea of faith seems to be receding that we could actually find a strange consolation in that. And that it's, if you were religious now, it's an act of the will. It's again, to quote O'Connor, right? O'Connor said, people think that religion is is a consolation, like a warm electric blanket, but it's not, it's a cross. And I think that's truer than ever in modernity. It's truer than ever in secularism. And so Ironically, our weird conditions of modernity, uh, Rahner said that in the future every Christian will be a mystic, or he will he or she will cease being a Christian at all, might actually sort of preserve these conditions to meet God on His own terms, and less on our own less on our terms, less on the terms of our city of sort of reducing, you know, God to the protector of, of the the nation we had hoped would live forever, or the empire we had hoped would live forever in a desert maybe you're more predisposed to encounter God in the desert-like conditions, which
0: our mystical, you know, pre-modern ancestors said, that's where you got to get to. No, yeah. You actually say that mysticism is, quote, fundamental to Christianity. Christianity, without some element of the mystical, is has lost something crucial to it, correct? Yeah, I think so. I think if it loses...
1: If we lose the mystical, as well as those those kind of core bedrock beliefs upon which the theory and practice of mysticism is built, then we probably are reducing our religion of worship and the glorification of God and the encountering of him and his strangeness, his beauty, and his breathtaking, breathtaking majesty, and we're turning him into a giant vending machine. This is another fancy way of saying moralistic, therapeutic deism, right? I'm good. God wants me to good and he helps me. And when I'm good, he gives me stuff I want. And I think that's the great sort of threat if you lose that. um, I don't know if McCarthy is thinking of this, but you remember in the road, the son says to the dad, dad, we're the good guys, right? And the Mm. dad replies, yeah, we're the good guys. And the boy says, because we have the fire. Yeah, that's right. Because we have the fire. I think if you <laughs> mysticism is the fire. Mysticism is 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 that encounter with God and his ineffable beauty such that in my life I feel now everything must change.
0: Hmm. Now getting there, you admit, is is not easy. You say that mystical experience must follow, quote, a period of discipleship, discipline. And one of the features of that, you say, is abnegation. What is involved there? Yes.
1: The tradition says that before you can get to this stage of illumination, right, maybe what some of our ancestors would have called natural contemplation. Before you can get to this kind of brilliant intellectual stage in which the inner meanings of things seem illuminated, you have to go through a process of ascesis, a process of abnegation, a process of getting used to saying no. That is, our ancestors taught that, and I guess this is just good basic Christianity, is that we match our natural condition in this post-lapsarian fallen world is to see a good and to covet it if we don't have it, and to be envious if someone else does, in other words, we're constantly sort of you know wrapping our fingers around these goods and clinging to them the every every you know writer of mysticism in order i jokingly say you have to read eighty two percent of stuff that you weren't expecting to get in order to get to the good stuff in any mystical treatise you pick up. Hmm. They spend most of their time writing about this, this ascesis, this type of moral desert-like condition in which I achieve a level of self-discipline. I'd like to put it this way, such that I can rejoice in the good and beauty of something, even if I don't possess it. That is preliminary and a precondition. And I think a lot of the sort of knee-jerk reactions of of my audiences, my students, and their parents, and they hear mysticism, and they think, oh, that's New Age stuff, or that's Eastern religion, mm. That's that's not good Christianity. I think a lot of that knee-jerk reaction is in some sense, because the way that mysticism in contemporary American culture has been commodified and packaged and sold, it's something you can get on an app, right? You know? meditation.com, right? And you can download it and you can be a mystic for 15 minutes as a way of helping you go to sleep. Or, you know, I jokingly say in the book, right, you can jump in your, your Toyota Prius and, and you know, flip people off as you're zooming to yoga class in order to go get your spiritual depth. But for our ancestors, right, mysticism is is the crown and glory of a life of discipline. A life of discipline more laborious, more arduous than any Olympic or professional athlete would inflict upon himself in our day, but that's why they go to the desert, and they go to the desert with spending three to four decades of preparation, and then, and then in those sort of you know in, in the the sunset of your life, once you've, once you have accustomed your will and your and your body to not covet every good that comes into your life then you'll begin to love these things independently of you. And that's when you sort of, you kind of come into the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the hills that anticipate the mountains of the mystical.
0: Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the university of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, this didn't happen, this loss of the mystical didn't happen recently. You actually go back to the 17th century, you talk about the 17th century having, in many, many instances, uh, a a plaintive and passionate expression of faith. You mentioned John Donne as a, a strong example, but that over the course of the century and into the 18th century, I guess we could just say with the Enlightenment, we got that rational and orderly expression that did did it, did it, I guess did they cast mysticism as one of the many forms of superstition, right? Yeah, I uh, think so. I mean, I th- I mean the, I think the, the Enlightenment, Enlightenment hates enthusiasm of all forms, right? Enthus, right? Enthusiasm. I always tell, them, I always have my students do the etymology of the word enthusiasm, uh, just to see that theo is 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 buried in there. But uh, what? I, I, I guess yeah, we had that. That's where the change really began. Yeah. I think so.
1: I, I mean, this is such a fun story to tell, and, and I wish I could tell it in all the beautiful, luxurious detail that it deserves. But I think it goes a little something like this. In the 17th century, the scientific method was adopted as a method that is a kind of intellectual discipline. I will not say things about the world when I'm doing this scientific method unless I have a certain type of evidence, of positive evidence, of empirical evidence to suggest it. And, you know, the scientific method was very successful in describing things like trajectories of cannonballs, right? Think Da Vinci or Galileo. And it was successful in describing sort of gravitational, universal gravitation. Think of sort of Newton. and But the method became so successful and gained so much prestige that it became a, this, you know, uh, Boz van Frazen uh, talks about this. It went from a methodological naturalism to an ontological naturalism. That is, especially in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, the argument was more or less advanced, so-called logical positism, positivism, something like this. We've, we've really only made progress in knowledge in terms of the scientific and mathematical methods could it be that the world is structured in such a way that it only yields knowledge because that's the best way to view it? Because that's what the world is like. Hmm. And thus there was a sort of, I mean, you think of, this would have surprised Boyle or Newton who were devoutly religious and thought there were other religious faculties that needed to be cultivated. They were sort of parallel. They were they were consistent in balance with you know, natural um, a methodological naturalism. But as it gained more success, and then especially in the sort of early 20th century, this it turned into a, a worldview, a way of thinking, well, because if if something appears outside of this grid, then it must not even exist. And I think that was a sort of, you know, kind of fateful moment. And then in, in my story, right, the 20th century is really where that sort of those wild hypotheses by the elite and elite universities of Oxford and Harvard and so forth, slowly seeps its way into the bedrock of the popular imagination and the popular psyche. That's, in some sense, the story of the kind of commercialization, uh, I guess we can say this, the commercialization of ontological naturalism, such that when we get to even Merton's day, right, you know, Merton, for whatever, you know, weirdness and issues behind merton was an unbelievable diagnostician of his age right mm-hmm. in his seven story mountain but also in some of his other kind of essays writing about this bustle culture he says we go out into the beautiful with the beautiful natural environment and we're afraid of its silence so we bring our noise to pollute it we bring our chainsaws and our four wheelers and our you know our snowmobiles because we can't handle that sort of thickness of silence which seems to suggest something which doesn't fit into this grid. So I guess in a way, yes, if, if that's my story, that experimental 17th century scientific methodology becomes a way of viewing the world, by a philosophy by the early 20th century. And then by the mid-20th century, and especially in our day, I think just sort of heightened by data culture, it's sunk so deep into our paradigms that it's difficult for us to even imagine an, an alternative. And that's, I think, why, in part, I wrote this book, is I just wanted to imagine the alternative. I don't really go into great detail of sort of, you know, pitting, trying to make a proof for the existence of God and, and those mystical faculties of the soul. I felt like, in a way, just just to make it even desirable, such that if even if people walked away from the book thinking, that's nice, I don't believe it, but they would say, yeah, I kind of wish it were true, though. In fact, I, one of one of my readers once wrote me and said, um, I, I'm an atheist. I, you know, belong to an atheist book group and we read difficult books. But when we read your Dante book, I thought, oh, that's why people are religious. I feel like th- that's the sort of goal of it, just to at least, just to at least make this thing seem, why, d- just to explain why our ancestors would have found it compelling and indeed demanding of all their faculties
0: of, of enthusiasm um in the first place. You mentioned silence a moment ago. Uh you actually spend time talking about a 20th century phenomenon to jump ahead the called quote the silence of God. Yeah. What is the silence of God here? It's not a bad thing, is it? Well it's one of the more painful I think parts of the
1: 20th century um in that you know, we read these texts of our ancestors, and as Taylor puts it, why is it that in 1500 it seemed impossible not to believe in God? Hmm. You read someone like Sam Harris or or Dawkins now, right, and they make believers look like lunatics, right? That uh, we believers are, believe just because either we have deep psychological issues and we're afraid of dealing with the world apart from, you know, a fairy tale, because we can't, we don't have the, our own independent resources to to muster, right? Or were kind of like debauched and delusional and want to control people, right? Those are the sort of standard explanations. And, you know, as of 2000 on, right? But in 1500, it was the exact opposite. You know, Marsilio Ficino writing about atheism really ascribes something like, I mean, he feels sorry for him. You know, he feels sorry for atheists. Like people now feel sorry for conservatives, right? Yeah. that uh, Like, you know. They're suffering a disease, the disease of melancholy, and, and that's why they, they don't believe in God. Um, but yeah, so I, so I think 20th century is in some sense speaking forth the fears that in our world, God doesn't seem to, doesn't seem palpably tangibly present, like He did in an archaic society or in the medieval world. God is silent. God is absent. Even Newman sort of hints at this kind of disturbing phenomenon in the mid nineteenth century. Where's Where's God? If there is a God, why does He make it so difficult for us to find Him? That I think that's the sort of the the philosophy, the concerns of the silence of God in the twentieth century, in the midst of all the evil of the twentieth century. Where's God in His world? And my you know my suggestion you know going along with Louis Dupré is those desert-like conditions might actually be the weird conditions in which we're forced in modernity to discover God in a way which is less prone to to the idolatrous in a world in which everyone believed in God in which it was easy to believe in God um, you know obviously the sort of the cultural commitment to God on an individual level is low but in a world in which it's hard to believe in God in which it demands tears and fear and, and worn-out knees, in some sense, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a safeguard of a way in which if you encounter him, you encounter him, as, you know, as we said at the beginning of
0: the show, in a way which is wild and unexpected. I, I was, I was uh, thinking in terms of what you said about the noise. People need to fill the silence with the noise right. and no. No, let the silence come. Right, I I actually tell students you've got to work in rituals of silence and solitude into right. your day. You right. need to do this yeah. in the day. No diversions, no distractions, and and but that can be True. that can be a little terrifying, right? Especially it, if you feel that silence is just empty. There was some crazy study done a
1: couple of years ago asking college students if they would be willing to. Turn off their phone and give it away for a week in exchange for something like fifteen thousand dollars. A shockingly high number of them said no. (laughs) Right, asking asking uh, you know an addict a smoker to to take a week off for some enormous sum like no are you are you crazy (laughs) right? Um, Yeah, so I I think so, and I I think I think that's that's one of the ways that we could actually extend and you know quote unquote update and modernize some of the kind of severe practices of the desert fathers like an Evagrius, right or like francis himself right no softy is just say with respect to our technological devices and how often we allow ourselves access to that distraction i think that is a good sort of way of of um, safeguarding an inner well of of quietude an inner well of uh, of tranquility of mind which is really, you know, foundational for any spiritual endeavor. So I, I agree with you with that, and I think that's one of the features of of Wyoming Catholic College that's done really well. Yeah. Silence is preparation for, for for words.
0: It could be not unrelated to something you highlight here—the incomprehensibility of God—and you actually talk about the ways in which some of the thinkers. Uh, religious thinkers of of the 20th century interpreted that, including Karl Rahner and, and Louis Dupre. How did they interpret this incomprehensibility of God? What is our stance toward something like that?
1: Yeah, the incomprehensibility of God. It all begins by just saying a simple sentence and then following out the logical conclusions from it god is the cause of creation if god is the cause of creation analogous to how a carpenter is the cause of a chair or a musician or a composer is the cause of a symphony or an artist is the cause of her painting then the platonic tradition would then say well look those who are causes are on an ontological level above that which they create, a level of being above the composer is not a piece of music, and the carpenter is not a piece of wood, and the painter is not a canvas, right They are on sort of ontological levels, and yet there's a kind of communication of each of those uh, of each of those craftsmen in their medium. Analogously, if God is the cause of creation, he's of a different stuff. He's of a different substance to that which we see around us. Now, if that's the case, it means that all of our language has to be used in quotation marks, right? Mm. That God is good, quote unquote. But of course, by good, I'm thinking about a sort of creature creaturely reality, or God is, that's sort of, that, that's, that is apophatic theology, you know, at its simplest. That is negative theology of putting quotation marks around all of our all of our words yeah. now once you do that then you might ask yourself the question well can i really know him can i really know him and the answer is well depends on what you mean by know god is above the intellect and he's above language and he's above rationality so you would have to have a and this is where people get i think kind of weirded out you would have to have a mystical faculty which was beyond language and beyond reason, which is that to which you could open up and turn Augustine calls it the oculus anima or the oculus cordis, the eye of the soul, the eye of the heart. Boethius calls it intelligentsia as opposed to ratio a ratio being the you know the rational faculty which a college professor wants his students to to exercise, but intelligentsia is something different. It's an intuitive faculty. Um, here's a, way, here's a cool way to put it along with the ancients. The ancients said that we had a long soul, right? A long soul. That is when we think of the soul, we think of it sort of extending, you know, think with Plato, right? In, uh, in the Phaedrus as sort of from the head down through the chest. We have these sort of spirited parts, these parts that love courage, that, that encounter beauty. We have these rational parts that do proofs. And then, of course, everyone knows about the extension of the soul down below my spirited parts, right? In modern psychology, right, the sort of deep psychology of either sort of archetypes or right, uh, the sort of Freudian subconscious, we all more or less sort of acknowledge these sort of deep workings of these kind of like levels of, um, well, let's just say levels of perversion or levels of evil, which guide more of our rational behavior than we'd like to admit. Pretty much every single one of our shows on Netflix is about this. But unlike us, the ancients believed in a corresponding extension, sort of, quote-unquote, up above my head. That there was, Father Zosima says this in Brothers Karamazov, right? That we have the roots of our souls are in heaven. That there's this sort of lengthy extension. In other words, there's a part of me, a faculty of my soul. Again, Boethius calls it intelligentsia. Augustine, with the Platonic tradition, calls it the eye of the soul which once upon a time was in tune and was seeing the divine in its own peculiar way. And the goal of the rational intellect is to get back to rediscovering that eye of the soul, which has been blinded or, you know, fallen asleep, and to wake it back up. Thus, there's a sort of special mystical, quote-unquote, faculty, which is not opposed to reason. It's not anti-rational. But I like to say it's rather... Um, at the center of reason, if reason is the all the points at the, uh, the circumference of the circle, intelligentsia or noose or this eye of the soul, this mystical faculty is the center point. And the goal of the mystical of the whole sort of mystical life is to uh, is to discover that, to waken that sort of in tunedness, if I may, in tunedness with the with God, wake it back up by means of rationality and morality. And then it functions as the sort of beating heart of
0: your rational life and your righteous life. The book is an introduction to Christian mysticism, recovering the wildness of spiritual life. Professor Baxter, thank you for joining us. This was a delight. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.